This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Psalm chapter 40. Imagine for just a moment what corporate worship would feel like if we never sang about Jesus. What if we sang songs about the glory of God and our need of grace and what it means to live as the people of God, but never once sang the wondrous mystery of the Messiah's birth or the perfect life of Christ lived in our place or the atoning death of Jesus upon the cross, or the joy of the resurrection on that third appointed day. Imagine. When Isaac Watts, who is my favorite hymn writer, when when Watts was a boy, he thought church music was not what it should be. He felt that the melodies were melancholy and the lyrics were lame, But what frustrated him more than anything was how the psalms they sang, and they didn't sing Christian hymns at that time, but just symmetrical psalms. What frustrated him more than anything is that they never mentioned Jesus. Dr. Watts loved the psalms, but he didn't love how Christians failed to sing how these ancient songs pointed forward to Christ. And so when he published his own translation of the psalms, he wrote in the preface, that his goal was to make his author speak like a Christian. What he meant by that is he didn't think it was right for Christians to sing the Psalms as if Jesus had never come, as if salvation had never been won. He wanted to sing of Christ in the Psalms. One of the primary ways that we know the Psalms point to Christ is because of How the New Testament authors quote them. The Psalms is one of the most quoted Old Testament books in the New Testament, second only to Isaiah. And most of the times the authors cite is to teach us something about Jesus. Luke 24 is probably one of the most important chapters in the New Testament to help us understand this. As Jesus walked and talked with two men on the road to Emmaus, Luke says that Jesus told them how everything written about him in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, the whole of the Old Testament points to Jesus, including this ancient hymnal located in the middle of our Bibles. As we've spent time in the Psalms this summer you may have noticed that Jesus is not named in one of them. Yet each of them sings about him in their own way. Christ is the melody of every psalm in Scripture. My goal has been to preach you Christ in the psalms, and I pray by God's grace as we've made our way now through these 40 chapters that you have heard the voice of Jesus In every one of them. On the last Lord's Day, I told you how as I began to work through Psalm 40, I got three verses in and didn't think we could go any further without just stopping and preaching 
on the great salvation of the king. We heard in those opening verses how King David looked back into the darkness of his past and gave thanks to the Lord for his saving work. And we also saw that there is a future aspect to what he was singing. The Lord promised that many would come to see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Well, today I wanted to look um, at this passage prophetically, to look at it in its forward reach to how God would one day fulfill that promise, not through King David, but through the true and better David, Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said of our passage, Jesus is evidently here. And I wholeheartedly agree. So my hope is to show you Christ in Psalm 40. And I pray that as we see him here, that our hearts would revel together in his glory. I pray also that we would have a strong sense, as Mike prayed, that he is evidently here with us as his body has gathered together for worship. I've divided our passage under three headings that each look forward to something pertaining not only to David, but to great David's greater son, Jesus. Here they are. First, the song of Christ. Second, the work of Christ. And third, the prayer of Christ. Would you stand with me as we read together from God's holy and inerrant word? Psalm chapter 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I've told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I've not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I've not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I've not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have taken over me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. 
May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Would you be seated? The first truth we hear about great David, the greater son, is found in the Song of Christ, verses 1 through 5. Last week we looked at these verses from two different angles. First we highlighted what they meant in David's life as he recalled this time that he was in a pit. Like Paul's thorn in the flesh, we don't know specifically what pit David was in, but it must represent a period in his life in which he was completely trapped by his circumstances and unable to free himself. The only two things David did in the situation was wait and cry out to God. Those are the only things he did. I did not say they were easy things that he did. Next, David sings of how God performed every action in saving his life. God inclined his heart toward David, heard his cry. God drew him up out of the pit he was in and then set his feet on a rock. Then God put a song of praise in his mouth. And that's what David sings of in these opening verses. Second, we looked at how we can sing the lyrics of this song. Perhaps many times in our lives we've been trapped in the pit of circumstances of bad choices. But of course, each of us can identify being in the pit of sin with no way out. But God, in his great grace, inclined himself to our desperate situation. Christ condescended all the way into our death in order to lift us from that pit through the power of his resurrection. And then he set our feet upon the rock of Christ and then put a new song in our hearts and in our mouths, a hymn of praise to God, to the God of our salvation. We were a people trapped in the darkest pit imaginable, but praise the Lord, we've been saved from it. So we've looked at how David is able to sing this song and how we are able to sing this song as the people of God. Now I want us to repeat these lyrics one more time because I want you to see how Jesus can sing the lyrics of Psalm chapter 40. So first, like David, Jesus waited. Waiting, I waited are the opening lyrics in Hebrew. And of course, Jesus is the model of patience and waiting. Hasn't he waited patiently for you? The one who exists in eternity and spoke time into existence waited until the fullness of time Even as he approaches the darkest hour of his life in the days leading up to the cross, we never see Jesus in some kind of frantic, restless hurry. But he trusted in his heavenly Father with every step by faith. Jesus has perfect timing, and his patience is something that is beyond our understanding. Second, Jesus cried. Think of the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where the son of David cried out, Father, if it's possible, 
let this cup pass from me, while at the same time praying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Just before that, he confessed to his closest friends how uh, his heart was weighed down and heavy and sorrowful, even unto death. And then, in the final moments before his death, he cried out again, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the way, quoting Psalm chapter 22, while at the same time praying into your hands, I commit my spirit. Jesus waited and cried out to the Father. Now let's rehearse what the Father did as we still just work our way through using this language. First, the Father inclined. He uh, bowed down his ear to his Son and heard every word. He saw every affliction, yet he did not spare Jesus, the agony of the cross, because the cross was the eternal plan of salvation from before the beginning of time to rescue sinners through the blood of the Messiah. The King of Heaven would hang on that wooden tree, lifted high for all to see, as He bore the weight of our sin upon His shoulders and carried our shame on His back as He bled and died for our pardon. And then, after three days of waiting in that grave, the Father drew him up out of the pit. I explained last week how David uses poetic imagery to communicate with this phrase, how that word pit is used in Scripture to represent the grave. We find that in Psalm 30, verse 3. Of course, Jesus is not in a figurative grave. He's not in a metaphorical pit. He's literally in a borrowed grave, at least for three days. Until the sunrise of that third day when the earth trembled and the stone that sealed the tomb rolled away as God lifted him out of the grave. The Apostle Paul uses that kind of language everywhere in his writings. That the Father lifted up Christ from the grave and then set his feet on a rock and then puts a new song in Jesus' mouth. Of course, we remember on the way to the grave, Jesus sings a hymn of praise to God with his friends. On the way away out of the grave, he would sing another hymn of praise, but this time to them to tell them all that God had done. Jesus becomes the very hymn that we sing, a new song of praise to the Lamb who was slain. And as we come to the end of this first section, I don't want us to miss that the only way that David could sing of the great salvation that he knew in God is because one day Jesus would come and sing these same words. David's salvation was secure, like secure as a rock, because he'd put his faith in the one who promised to fulfill these words. The only way we can sing of the great salvation of God is because Christ came and fulfilled these words. So as we step back from verses 1 through 5, David has sung these words. We can sing these. And all of us, because Christ himself has sung the song. The Psalms are the songs of Christ. The second truth foretold about great David's greater son pertains to the work of Christ. Verses 6 through 10. One preacher from a previous generation said, Here we enter one of the most wonderful passages in the whole of the Old Testament. 
A passage in which the incarnate Son of God is seen, not through glass darkly, but face to face. And there are indeed so many wonderful things happening in this passage. I commend you to meditate on. We don't have time to get to all of them. What I do want to do is share with you what hit me so hard when I was thinking about the work of Christ that I see in this passage. I was overwhelmed about how these verses talk about the substitutionary life of Jesus and the substitutionary death of Jesus. Let's look at both of those. When it comes to the substitutionary life of Christ, we think about his active obedience how Jesus willfully obeyed the will of the Father in every desire, every thought, every word, every action in his life. However, David doesn't begin by looking forward to Jesus, rather by looking first back to King Saul. Let me explain. Verses 6 through 8 borrow a lot of language from 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 and 23, where Uh, Samuel the prophet confronts King Saul because of his sin. Samuel had told Saul and his army that God's will was for them to destroy the Amalekites, especially wicked King Agag, and to do so so completely, you kill all of the animals as well. But um, instead of doing this, they disobeyed. Saul and his army spared Agag's life, and they kept all of the animals for their use. But you see, this is not what God had told them to do. And the king of Israel's main job was to obey the word of the Lord. Instead, Saul had rejected it. And so listen to what Samuel said to him. And I want you to look at verses 6 through 8 here in front of you as I read 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. And I want you to see how similar these words are. There, Samuel says to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, you'll notice those three words all similar, delight, burnt offerings, and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. And really this whole section is about David saying that he's obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, you'll find that word there, is to obey Better than sacrifice. And to listen, that's to listen to God's word, um, than the fat of rams. So those two verses sound very similar, don't they? When Saul recognized that he had rejected the word of the Lord, he tore the corner of his robe. And Samuel says to him in that very moment that God had torn the kingdom from him because of his disobedience and because he had rejected the word of the Lord. And then Samuel tells him that the Lord had given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. The neighbor that God had given the kingdom to that was better than Saul was none other than David, who would soon be anointed the king of Israel. Okay, so now let's look at how David uses these words. He uses the same words that Samuel had given to Saul And now David is saying them to God. He says, God, I've come to delight in your word. God, I'm standing before you to do your will. You you spoke of me in the ancient scroll. And David's correct. And he knows that what God delights in is a life that conforms to God's word. 
and to God's will, a life so conformed to his word that it's alive deep in the heart. And David is a man after God's heart. And he wants to please him. Yet he also realizes that he is sinful And he is not the one who could perfectly obey the law of God. Although the desire of David was to say, here I am, I've come, I desire to do your will. The only man who can say those words with every fiber of his being is Jesus Christ. And so it's no accident that the psalmist uses the language of the prophet Samuel in his own prayer Because it pointed to David, and now David uses those same words to point to Jesus, someone better than him who would come later. As I was just making my way through this, I didn't know how to put language around it all, and so I just drew a little simple math chart that Saul is less than David, and David is less than Jesus. This is the best I could come up with. But guys, I'm telling you, this just blew my mind. This blew my mind. As David prays, looking back to seeing, yes, how he fulfills the word of God, but he wouldn't do it perfectly. He was far less than the one to come. So Saul is less than David. David is less than Jesus. So how do we know that, I mean, there's still a long time to pass between them the day that David writes these words and the day that that Messiah would be born. How do we know that he's speaking of Jesus here? The way we know is because the New Testament shows us he is. The New Testament teaches us that this psalm is pointing to Christ. The writer of Hebrews quotes this exact passage and shows how it points to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. Turn in your Bible with me to Hebrews Chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. There, starting in verse 5, it says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. So not just an ear, but the whole body, the heart. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. As it is written of me in the scroll. And when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What we learn here is that Jesus is the one who David was singing of in Psalm 40. Jesus not only listens and obeys, his whole body is this once for all sacrifice on our behalf. And he does this in great fulfillment of scripture. Now, there's a wonderful bridge. So first we see Jesus and his substitutionary life. But what Hebrews fleshes out there is also is a wonderful bridge to looking at Jesus' substitutionary death. The worship of Israel for ages had been centered around the idea of sacrifice. Bulls and sheep, goats and doves. The sacrificial system was not given 
by God to his people so they could earn their forgiveness from sin, but to provide a physical demonstration through sacrifice of their faith in the God of Israel who could forgive sin. And as we arrive at verse 6, there are some important things we need to understand. It's confusing language at first. The phrases sound like God never required sacrifice or burnt offerings, and it cannot be um, a literal translation of what he means here. Because passages like Leviticus 1.19 tells us that the aroma of burnt offerings were a smell pleasing to the Lord. So what is David saying? He's using hyperbole to make the point that God was not interested merely in external offerings and sacrifices being made for sin. He wanted the hearts of his people. That's what he was after. Relationship with you. Communion with you. And the only way that could come is through the once and for all perfect, final sacrifice that would come through Jesus Christ. The sacrifice of animals would not be enough. Every type in the Old Testament points forward to Christ, who is the anti-type, the fulfillment of all of those things. And so, in this little section, we just want to highlight the substitutionary life of Christ and substitutionary death of Christ. There's a lot more there we don't have time to get into today. Who knows, maybe we'll do Psalm 40 again next week. But what does this mean for us? What does it mean to look at the work of Christ in his substitutionary life, substitutionary death? It means that Jesus is the one who perfectly obeyed the will of the Father and whose death was the final sacrifice. And that is good news. Look at verse 9. I have told the glad news. What does that sound like? Gospel. I have told the gospel of deliverance in the great congregation. That's among the people of God. Did David do this? Yes, David did this. But who else came proclaiming great news of deliverance? Jesus Christ. He came proclaiming the good news of forgiveness of sin through his life and through his death. Jesus is the blessed man of Psalm 1 who delighted in the will of the Father. Jesus is the king of Psalm 2 who rules and reigns on the throne. We could continue on from there. But just know for now the Psalms prophetically point. They sing of the work of Christ. And then the third truth we we find foretold in great David's greater son is found in the prayer of Christ, verses 11 through 17. Now, the way that this prayer of David is written easily looks forward to Jesus and perfectly fits on his lips. Matthew Henry, I think, is helpful here. He says, the psalmist, David, having meditated on the work of redemption, which we see him doing early in the psalm, and spoken of it in the person of the Messiah, which we saw in the second section, now comes to make improvement of the doctrine of his meditation between us and God, and therefore speaks in his own person. So there he talks about David, but look about what he says of Christ. Christ, having done his Father's will, and finished his work, and given orders for the preaching of the gospel to every creature, we are encouraged to come boldly to the throne of grace for mercy and 
grace. Of course, we know from other places in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is our great high priest who is praying for us even in this very moment. And he is seated, not standing, because his work is done. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And God, the Father, is inclined to hear his prayer. His prayer for you. The content of this prayer teaches us two things that will be fulfilled in Christ. The first is that Jesus paid for our sins. Well, Boaz, that feels like a real stretch there. Never mentions Jesus. Never mentions him paying for our sins. And plus, I think, if we're saying that Jesus is the one who can sing this psalm and pray this prayer, it seems like there's a massive problem we come face to face with in verse 12. Doesn't it look like that? How could Jesus say these words? Evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have taken over, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. How can Christ, the one who always delighted to obey the Father and never sinned, how can he sing those words? How can he pray those words? The way Jesus can pray those words are because of the cross. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, Christ himself bore, not his sin, but our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you are healed. So on the cross, the full burden of the sins of his people was placed on Jesus He wore more than a thorn of crowns upon his head. He wore our crown of shame. He was pierced with more than a spear. He was pierced with our transgressions. And the weight of our sin was a weight that we cannot fathom. And it was so crushing that his heart failed him. And it was Jesus who can pray the prayer, verses 13 and 14, as he mentions those scoffing and mocking gathered at the foot of the cross who sought to take his life and delighted in his hurt. Who spat on him and beat him and nailed him to the tree saying, aha, aha. And then notice also that Jesus prays for his people. There is a wonderful benediction, a blessing spoken over the people of God in verse 16, and it's full of application for us. Application that it would be helpful to go into, but we have no time for that. So I just want to draw three lines between um, what this song is saying and what Jesus says as a part of this prayer. Christ sang the song of deliverance, of salvation, so that we might be a people who seek him, rejoice in Christ, and whose hearts are glad in God. That's why Jesus sang that song of salvation. The works of Christ were performed so that we might love the salvation that we've been given and love the Savior through whom our salvation come, through his substitutionary life and substitutionary death. The prayer of Christ reminds us of the one who 
paid it, who paid the price of our sins, was both sacrifice and great high priest. So that we may be a people who continually say to one another and to the world, great is the Lord. And I just love how verse 5 ends. So what this means is we're called to tell of all that God has done for us in and through Jesus. And David says, I'm going to be faithful to do this. I will proclaim. I will tell of them. Yet, and what a glorious phrase, they are more than can be told. Don't you know that to be true? So Jesus is evidently here in this passage. While King David would sing of the salvation that God had performed for him in his life, great David's greater son would come as the king who would bring salvation to his people. And today we've seen how this passage prophetically points forward to how God would come and one day fulfill that promise, not through King David, but through great David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is evidently here in this psalm. May Jesus be evidently with us as we go and proclaim the works and wonders of our God. They are more than can be told. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for every word of your word. For every letter and syllable, paragraph, chapter, book. And how your word fits together in such divine order, pointing to the one who would come and now the one who has And I pray that we would be faithful students of Scripture, that we would grow as worshipers of Jesus by reveling in the truth of your word and applying it to our lives, centering our lives, reorienting our lives around what you say to be true. Let us be people who delight in you and who delight to do your will, who delight in your word as we follow the one who has perfectly done it all in our place. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.